Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales, and we are excited to have a former Olympian on the show and a fellow traveler with bipolar disorder. As longtime listeners of the show know, I live with bipolar disorder, and I always love it when I can have somebody who has achieved so much despite bipolar disorder come on the show and sort of represent. Also, we then outnumber Vincent, and that's just (laughs) always awesome. Amy Gamble, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gabe, and thanks, Vincent, and thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Well, we are really excited to have you here, and we could design an entire show about being an Olympian, but, you know, since we're a mental health show, we should probably stay away from that, but give us just just a a tiny little bit of your past history, you know, what sport did you play, what was it like, what year, Just, just, just fill in those blanks a little bit. Sure. So I started out as a college basketball player. I was an All-American top five player in the in the country when I was in high school. I played at the University of Tennessee for the legendary Coach Pat Summit. And after about a year and a half in, I had some mental health challenges. Um, no surprise there. And I ended up quitting basketball and I changed sports to a new sport called team handball. And then we lived and traveled all over the world training and playing against Uh, incredible competition and we qualified for the olympics in 1988 in seoul korea and i remember when i look back and think about one of the most surreal moments in my life has been walking into olympic stadium during opening ceremonies and it's something that if i think about now it almost takes me back in that moment in time and it's it was just it made me a big believer in that dreams really do come true and I can also tell you that in that in that moment, I've used that in my own recovery journey as well to remind myself um, that I was a person uh, beyond just having a mental illness diagnosis. It's incredibly amazing to be able to meet and speak with a former Olympian. So congratulations on all that success. And now let's switch gears to talk about you know, the less cool things, which is you became a mental health advocate because as, as we said at the beginning of the show, you live with bipolar disorder. When you sort of alluded a little bit, but when did these mental health challenges start? What specifically were they and, and how were you diagnosed? Kind of fill in those gaps for us. Well, there's kind of a big gap for me in my life from when I first started to experience what was showed up as depression. It was the middle of my sophomore year. I was at University of Tennessee, living my dream, playing for Pat Summit. And then I got really, really sick with uh, depression. I started having a hard time concentrating. I couldn't remember the plays on the court. Uh, I was crying uncontrollably in my bed. And all I could think about was suicide and wanting to die. And, and that's what was a, a turning point in me when I decided to leave um, my dreams behind kind of thing. And then um, took some time to really just get well on my own, essentially. And then started training at the Olympics. And during that time, I started experiencing a lot more what I would consider hypomania. We would train for eight hours a day. 
and then I would still have all this excess energy. So I would go take a 50 mile bike ride or I would go play racquetball with all the guys for hours on end. And so I was able to manage my, the mania side for a really long time with a lot of excessive exercise, including after the Olympics. But what first brought me to the doctor was really extreme levels of depression. And uh, he, he diagnosed me with depression. That was probably back in 1993. Um, but it wasn't until 1999 when I had a manic and a psychotic episode that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So tell us about the, the path that you took then. How long did it take you to, you know, to reach recovery? I wish I could tell everyone that once I got that diagnosis after my first episode that I embraced the diagnosis. I learned everything I possibly could about bipolar disorder. And then I was able to recover and, you know, move on with my life. But that's not how it worked out. It took me about, I'd say, 10 to 12 years of, you know, I would, I would get, I'd have an episode, manic, psychotic, usually, which would be how it was. And then three months later, I'd go back to work. Sometimes I continued medication. Sometimes I didn't. And then it wasn't until really about six years ago that I just said, you know, I'm not going through this anymore. I'm taking control of my life. And I had had a psychotic episode. I thought my family was trying to poison me. And I got in my car in the middle of the night and drove all the way across the country to Montana. And for whatever reason, I happened to get off the exit, middle of winter, drove up to the top of the mountain and got out of the car. And uh, there was a log cabin up there on, on this mountaintop. And I thought it was mine during my confused state. Went in the, in the cabin, I made some coffee, made myself a home. And then I thought to myself, if I'm going to stay here for the winter, I need to go get supplies. So I got back on the road. And I drove and just kept driving until I got into Idaho and I got off at exit and uh, was in the Idaho National Forest. And I ended up getting my car stuck in the snow and then getting lost for like three days in the Idaho National Forest. So finally I was rescued and I was taken to a hospital in Idaho in Coeur d'Alene. And while I was there, there was a nurse there who gave us a presentation on bipolar disorder. She taught me so many things about it, but the one thing that she said that stuck in my mind forever was that you have bipolar disorder, it's a brain disorder, and it's not your fault. And for so long, I had sort of been internalizing this whole idea of guilt and shame about having a mental illness, and that was the turning point for me. And then after that, unfortunately, uh, because I had gone into that log cabin, I ended up getting arrested when I got out of the hospital and I spent a few weeks in jail and while I was sitting in that jail cell I was thinking I could either do one of two things I can really just feel sorry for myself and just kind of give up or I can recover and get better and use everything that I've learned to try to help other people and that's what I've tried to do with mental health advocacy work. Fantastic. I love where you ended up obviously, as a mental health advocate, because we got to meet, we got to work together. I'm always inspired by your story. And the thing that I like most about it is the turning point for me was kind of the same way. When somebody told me, you have an illness, it's not your fault, because you're right. I, I just felt bad and guilty and hopeless and scared all the time. And it just, it wasn't something that was touched on. It was just, you have an illness, go forth and be ill. 
and uh, I'm an advocate because I believe in education and I know you are as well. I, I just think that if we just start normalizing this whole idea of mental illness and physical illness being kind of the same thing, it's a mind, body, spirit sort of thing. And we can't separate our brains from the rest of our bodies. And so we just need to, to make it not weird or odd or strange to have a mental illness. It's just part of uh, the lot that we drew in life. It could have been anything else as well. That's the basis, of course, of all the stigma that we have to deal with because people continue to fail to realize that mental illnesses are physical illnesses. That they're not different. Yeah, they're it's in your, your brain. <laughs> it's, your your yeah. brain is a part of your body. Last I checked. So yeah. So and, and I I like um, I like how you how you put it. Normalizing it is seems to me like maybe a better approach than saying destigmatize something. It's it's like the same thing but different. And I, I like that. I like that language. Well, you know, when you when you start looking at mental health advocacy, you even start getting advocates who splinter and fight amongst them, themselves talking about, is there a stigma? Oh, yeah. Is there not a stigma? And so I just start trying to put it into language that I feel like relates to the audience that I'm talking to. And usually that's younger people. And and that seems to work. They, they kind of grasp onto the whole idea that, oh, yeah, our, I guess our brain can get sick, too. That makes sense. It's amazing how many people don't even think about that. Mm-hmm. It is very true. So I, I want to ask a question about the log cabin. How did the story end up? Because I know that many of us, myself included, have been involved in, in situations like this where, uh, you know, where we had to make amends to a family member, or we had a legal situation, or we, we ended up, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. The, these are not uncommon stories to have this, even after you realize that you've made a mistake it lingers. You, you can't just say, oh, I now realize that that was wrong. There's still stuff to take care of. How did that story finish up? I mean, obviously you're, you're not in jail anymore. After I spent three weeks in jail, I was released to the custody of my sister. She came out, flew out to Montana and, and she brought me home. I left the jail with a monitor on my ankle and didn't really know how it was going to turn out. I was looking at if convicted of all the crimes uh, that I was charged with, uh, a very long time in prison. And so it was a lot of stress around that time. Um, But I'm a person with a lot of faith and did a lot of praying and had a lot of support from family members and a great defense attorney. And he was able to get me, uh, get all the charges dropped. I never even came out with any type of conviction at all. And all I had to do for the next three years was have my psychiatrist send a report back to the prosecuting attorney. And, um, and that essentially took care of, um, you know, making, making amends. I did uh, make some payments to the people who, in the house with some of the things that I took out of their house and left outside. Um, I was able to, to repay them for that sort of thing. Uh, and then I just sort of moved on with my life. Let's talk about uh, your life since then. What are you doing now? Right now, I'm with the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Greater Wheeling, Greater Wheeling chapter. I'm the executive director there and have really worked in the last four years of building up our NAMI chapter and was able to hire. We now have myself and two other employees, and we've added, we have like six support groups, four for youth, two for adults, and then a family support group. 
we brought in a lot of speakers to an annual conference that we're doing. And actually, Gabe is going to be coming to our conference this coming June. And so those are sorts of the kinds of things I've been doing. A lot of talks. I've given about 150 talks to all sorts of different audiences from five people to just 1,100 the other day at a high school that I, I spoke at. So doing a lot to raise awareness for mental health. And you know, as we talked about earlier, just trying to normalize it so that people know that it's, it's okay if something is wrong and it's okay to get the help that you need. We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor and we will be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about mental health advocacy with former Olympian Amy Gamble. Amy, thank you so much. Why did you decide to become a mental health advocate? Well, really, when I was sitting in that jail cell, I was, you know, thinking again, like, what am I going to do here? You know, feel sorry for myself and give up? Or am I going to use everything that I have learned from my experience to be able to try to help somebody else? And it was really in that moment that I decided that I was going to be a mental health advocate and that I was going to use the things that I've learned and in some cases a cautionary tale for people to use my story to help as many people as possible. And, you know, I just really felt of uh, followed through on that promise that I made. And, and that's what I've been I've been working at ever since. So obviously mental health advocates come in all shapes and sizes. Vin and I are podcasters, there's bloggers, there's uh, YouTubers, there's speakers, there's writers. Where do you fit in? Uh, you know, because mental health advocate is kind of a generic term. What specifically is your advocacy? I'm a splintering of a lot of things. I've written a blog for the last five years called Shedding Light on Mental Health. I obviously have written a book and I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of teaching mental health first aid classes. And then I work with NAMI, Greater Wheeling, as uh, in the leadership position there and trying to help build an organization that supports the community with a variety of different support groups and things like that. Amy, what audiences do you shoot for when you do your talks? I really started out with a strategy to reach young people. So whether that was college-age students or middle school and high school students, but it's ended up that I've talked to a really broad group of, of people. Um, everything from, I've, I've spoken to seniors and senior centers uh, out in Wyoming, and I've uh, spoken at a conference, a NAMI conference for NAMI Kentucky with a wide variety of ages. And then most recently, I did um, the 1,100 students at a local high school. So I, I have a, a gift and a skill to be able to communicate to different audiences. And so I'm really open to take the same kind of message, um, but uh, use a little different language depending upon who it is. That makes perfect sense. Were the high school students the scariest, to be honest? <laughs> you know, 1,100 is a lot. <laughs> so that, that <laughs> might have been the, the initial scary part. Like, 
you know, I had always wanted to do this and here, here I was, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to do this. And it's a week before and I'm thinking, what, 1100. <laughs> okay. And to be honest with you, I, I've spoken to over 5,000 people uh, prior to that, but not all at one time. So I had a lot of experience in talking to kids, but to captivate an audience that large for the entire hour um, was something that I think that even the principal and the other folks who invited me there were wondering if that's if I could do it. And it actually turned out that, you know, kids, they want to talk about mental health and they want to talk about what is real and impacting them today. And, and that's the important thing. Last night I went to the movies and hadn't had a lot of feedback about that talk. And I went to, to the concession stand and the girl looks at me and then she fills my drink and she turns around and she says, you were that speaker we had at my high school. I said, oh yes, yes I was. And then she said, I love that talk. That was the most real talk we've heard at our school. Thank you. So that just solidified that, you know, I'm, I'm on the right track. I need to just keep doing what I'm doing. That's wonderful. That is awesome. And, and, and I agree with you. I, I think that people, especially young people, pardon my French, they really can spot the bullshit. And mm-hmm. I think that so many speakers are so worried about crafting uh, a, a message or having like very important takeaways. And I'm not saying that those things aren't valuable, but they forget about the reason why you should listen and they're not vulnerable and they, they leave stuff out and they, they puff or they exaggerate. And one of the things that I've always liked about you, Amy, is it's it's there. It's raw. This is what it is. And, and these these are the things that people can do. And that makes you very relatable. And I think that has a lot of power when it comes to mental health advocacy. I really do. Well, thanks, Gabe. I appreciate that. All I really ever wanted was to be able to make a positive difference. And I always tell people that when you have experiences that are really negative, there's a lot of energy around that. There's a lot of energy around that in memories and, and looking back and having a lot of regrets and wishing that things could be different. But you, can't, you cannot change those things that happened in the past, but you can take that energy and use it for the good. And that's what I try to focus on every single day and in the, in the talks and the teaching that I do about mental health. That sounds really good. Now, you mentioned that you've, you've spoken to a lot of high school students. One of the things that, that strikes me about young people today is that they are so much more open to not only hearing the messages that mental health advocates have to give, but, but engaging and speaking openly about their things, whereas older generations, including mine, were very reticent to do that. And, and I just think it's, it's great that this, this new generation is, is so cool with it. Yeah, they're not, they're not only cool with it, but they're seeking information. You know, they are, they are struggling with a lot of high increases in rates of anxiety and clearly depression. And they want to know why they're in pain. Why are they struggling with social interactions? Why are they having a hard time when they know that there are tests to take and their anxiety is off the roof? And they're, they're not being able to cope with these things. They, they, they want to be able to cope and they want to be able to go on and live their lives. And all of that is possible. We just have to give them 
the right tools to be able to do that. We have to let them know that it's okay not to be okay. And that really is the rub, isn't it? We have to give them the right tools. There is more information for young people than probably at any other point in human history. And that's good because they can get the right information. But of course, there's so much of it, they can easily stumble upon the wrong information. And that is why talking to these kids with the correct messages is so valuable because we have the correct information. It might not be exciting or fancy, but it's accurate. And like you said, they are searching for the information that they need. And that really leads me to my next question. What are sort of your key messages? What are the takeaways that you want folks to have after you speak to them? Well, through my story, I want them to know that resilience is something that everyone has and that you know, I, I tell them that they have a reservoir of resilience and that, that it's infinite because of everything that I have been through and have been able to overcome, you know, that that's about resilience. And so I want them to get that message. I also want them to get the message that what we talked about before, where our brain is part of our body and it's going to have, it's going to malfunction. It's, it's going to have disease just like anything else. And that it's okay to get help and to, to use the mental health America tagline before stage four. So letting them know that once symptoms first start to appear is the best time to get the help that you need and not wait until a mental illness gets to stage four where you have the consequences of homelessness, joblessness, and incarceration. So those are sort of, those are really my key messages for them. Resilience and getting help before stage four. I agree. That is critical. So you have... Rumor has it that you have won SAMHSA's Voice Award. Is that right? That is right, yes. That is awesome. Thank you. For those who don't know, what is a SAMHSA Voice Award? So for the last 13 years, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration have given these voice awards. They give some for, I think about four, for peer, family, consumer leadership awards for mental health advocacy. And then they also give awards to a variety of different people in Hollywood who are portraying people with mental illness in a way that is, is either seen in a positive light or helps to eliminate the stigma. And I was fortunate enough to be a recipient of one of those, one of those awards this year. So it was really, really surprising to me, to be honest with you. I never thought I'd win an award for mental health advocacy, let alone a national award. So I'm certainly very humbled by that. Congratulations. That is very cool. So what movie were you in and what part did you play? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, with the story that I have, like, you know, a lot of people, I could have been in the movie where, you know, mentally ill person gets lost in the wilderness or um, small town girl achieves big time dreams. I could make up with you, see? Mm-hmm. Well, you are also the author of a book, as you mentioned earlier, but let's talk about that for a moment. The The book is called Bipolar Disorder, My Biggest Competitor. And I know the book is about your story. And, you know, don't give away the ending, which we all know as you become an awesome mental You just gave away the ending. But, oh, Dude. oh, terrible. Um, but I have two questions, and, and both questions are very important. Um, one, when somebody reads your book, 
what do you want them to learn? And, and I'm guessing it's probably the same as when you give a speech. But two, and perhaps the most important question is, who is going to play you in the movie version? <laughs> oh, well, the, fir- the, the second one made me laugh. Um, the first one, what, what should they get out of the book? I, I, I think it's really about what you talked about, being relatable. I'm also a family member of loved ones who have bipolar disorder and mental illness. And so I've been in that other chair of advocacy. I've been the the daughter who had to go involuntarily commit her mother before filling out paperwork to do that. So um, there are stories about being that part um, and, and having to, to, uh, to live that kind of life as well. And then there are obviously my own journey and there's, you know, certainly as, as always, there's more to my story than just getting lost in the wilderness. And there's the early signs and symptoms of bipolar showing up, but me not really realizing it and not knowing it. And then ultimately, you know, I want people to know that you have to take these things seriously, that it's, it's not as simple as just take a handful of pills and you'll be all well. There's a recovery process that has to happen that really does include mind, body, spirit. So those, those are kind of the, the messages and the threads throughout the book. I don't know who would play me in a movie. <laughs> oh, hell, I'll do it. <laughs> oh, Vin, Vin, you would be fantastic. Amy, I, I really like those messages because I, I think that those are the most relatable ones. You, you know, there, there's a lot of mental health books out there and there's a lot of information out there. And some of them can be, you know, very big picture and very scary and very, we need more money. We need more people to pay attention. We have to fight stigma, which is, you know, this nebulous idea at best. But the messages where they say, look, I went through all of this and I survived Everybody is going through something and they all want to get through it and survive. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I've, you know, I, I have a love hate relationship with some of these stories. On one hand, you know, I, I really love them because, oh my God, I've, I've been through these things too. And I came out the other side and that I like hearing about other people that do it. And, you know, the hate comes in because I want everybody to have the story. And if everybody has the story, it would make books like this meaningless you know, nobody writes a book on how they survived a cold because everybody gets cold and everybody gets well. So there's no story there. Right. And it, so, you know, I can't wait for the day that people stop calling us brave because we admit that we were sick and we got better. Yeah. I agree. Or that or courageous. You know, you're so cur- uh, yeah. courageous for publicly coming out and doing a commercial about bipolar disorder and encouraging people to get help. Um, I, I, I appreciate the courageous comment, but I, in my view, I'm just being honest and I'm being authentic and I'm being real and I want people to just know the facts. Like, I think we just have to be direct and honest with people that if you get this diagnosis, it's not the end of the world, but it does mean you have to take it seriously because if you don't, it will, and there's no ands, ifs, ors, or buts about it. It will destroy your life, but it doesn't have to. And, and that's the key component, that there is a silver lining in all of this. It's a very treatable condition, and we just all have to learn how to manage it. Exactly. I agree completely. Amy, I'm assuming that everybody can find your book, Bipolar Disorder, My Biggest Competitor on Amazon.com. I assume that that is correct. 
That is correct. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. We really enjoyed yes, talking thank to you. you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.